Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. This season's broad theme is navigating uncharted territory. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform. Welcome to season 10 of Surviving Society podcast. It's me and Tiso. Thank you so much to everyone that has supported us since we've gone weekly for over a year now t Chantel, it's a madness. It's a madness. i can't believe it's been over a year we try and adequately mark the occasion we hit 100 episodes but we've been going for nearly a year now and we just wanted to take this opportunity particularly given everything that's been going on just to say thank you so much for how many of you have supported us how many patrons we have now as well and just everyone remaining critically engaged with us as well because that's what's really important for us like me and tita always say we're a work in progress and we're yeah. always trying to learn and do better and bring on people that can help us do that as well so yeah we are really excited to have with us someone that deeply inspires us at surviving society dr ornette clennan who is a scholar activist critical race theorist founder of the making education a priority supplementary schools in manchester which is for people of african caribbean descent he is visiting professor at federal university of the amazon and Ornette is also on the drafting committee for the International Collective of People of African Descent at the UN. I think this is our first like, <laughs> UN like, guest. Really important within this introduction to you, Ornette, is that you have written this absolutely brilliant book, Black Scholarly Activism Between the Academy and Grassroots, A Bridge for Identities and Social Justice. And in mine and Tiso's pre-conversation, we were talking about how amazing this book is for this moment and how it's exactly what we need because so many of us, we've felt lost for years, haven't we? Like we've all felt lost and now it feels like we're at a bit of a tipping point. We need the information, we need the methods, we need the spirituality, we need the metaphysical, we need all the different things. And I feel like so much of that is in this book. I agree with Chantel, 100%. Like when I read your book, I was thinking to myself, this is timely because it offers some solutions. Normally, we always hear about problems. We always hear problems, but rarely we talk about solutions because obviously they're more difficult to come about. And especially when you're talking about this current moment, especially with black people up until this point, any dissolution we've tried, they failed, right? Yeah. So it's time to have a different discussion and a different debate about looking at things from a different point of view outside this Eurocentric gaze and this perspective of, of everything, basically, which is difficult to do. And I think you kind of hit that on the book. Oh, thank you. And Ornette, just before we get into it, as we've got quite a lot of listeners now. Hi, guys. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> It would be really good, Ornette, if you could sort of break down what supplementary schools are yes, and, and the sort of the philosophy around Pan-Africanism and education, how you came about founding MEEP as well, and just sort of giving people a very basic introduction into what that arena is and its contribution. So before I kick off, I just want to say that um, I'm a very, very small cog in an army of people. So I co-founded MEEP 
um, with four other directors and my UN work. I'm part, I'm just a small part of quite a big team, a global team. So I don't want to kind of make myself sound bigger than I actually am. Annette, we are your fans. We're <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> We're not about individualism here on Spire and Society. However, we do like to pick up our Thank you. Thank you. A supplementary school. I think the first supplementary school was founded in 1857. The history buffs will probably correct me. And I think it was a Jewish supplementary school in Lincoln. And it was founded so that Jewish children could continue to learn about their heritage and learn Hebrew. That is the the sort of nugget of it. Now, in terms of the African diaspora, and I'm going to talk specifically from a Manchester point of view, we have had supplementary schools in Manchester for over 50 years. And I think that's probably about the same time as anywhere else, but in Manchester. And for us, it was always a movement that was about filling in the gaps within mainstream education. So our children who are routinely and who have been routinely demoralised in mainstream education by being stripped of their culture and heritage, which means that they weren't engaging with the the curriculum, the mainstream curriculum. Saturday schools, which they are called as well because they run on Saturdays, were founded by parents um, within local communities to address those problems of the mainstream holes in the curriculum. In other communities with other letters of the BAME acronym, languages are an important aspect. British South Asians or Europeans um, who have come over, they want to obviously maintain their languages. Whereas in the African diaspora, languages haven't really been a huge focus. It's been more about educational attainment and the teaching of the core subject, but within a cultural framework of pride and achievement. So massive emphasis on black history and trying to thread black history through uh, mainstream subjects, English, obviously, sciences and maths, and looking at bl- trying to find black role models. More recently, and I can again only talk from a very local perspective, some new supplementary schools that are African led specifically are now looking at teaching traditional languages from Nigeria and Ghana that I, I know of um, alongside their mainstream subjects. So the supplementary school tradition in this country has always been a political statement of saying we refuse to be erased. We are here and we are here to stay and our history is part of who we are and our cultural heritage which is a a kind of shorthand framework for our historical narrative and our historical journeys are important to our identities of who we are. So if you're not going to teach it in the mainstream schools, we're going to teach it on Saturdays to our children. Wow. This position, like this has always been challenged by the mainstream. So the yes. idea of a supplement school, so the idea that if you don't, if you somehow by being particular, Mm-hmm. you are you are messing with the, the process of assimilation right yeah, so yeah, the, yeah assimilation the state wants you to become mm-hmm. was one with this mechanism so they would encourage you to well just like the, the normal mechanisms basically stay in school don't learn your own language learn english and become a fully paid up member of this society a full-blown, yeah. full-blown citizen but we know that this is problematic right Yes. When we first started talking about your book, Ornette, me and Tiso, we were looking at sort of the chapters and stuff and we were looking at 
education, learning whiteness, it just hit me in the heart quite hard because I was like, that is kind of UK education in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Like learning not to be us and learning mm-hmm. to be something that oppresses us. Yes. And it's just seeing it written and how clearly you articulate it throughout that chapter as well. Like it's a lot because I'm unlearning decades of this system, which hasn't wanted me to flourish, basically. It's wanted no. me to I say assimilate, but assimilation mm-hmm. is a lie. It's a lie. Mm-hmm. And it is oppressing us. I think when you hit the nail head with like you spoke about the hologram in your, ah, in your work, like mm-hmm. the hologram, the inversion. But I think most kids of the modern era understand that analogy so they would yeah. say we, we often refer to it as the matrix right you yeah see, yeah absolutely just, yeah you, you know something's <laughs> off right you know yeah, something's off absolutely but you're not too sure what's off we need to talk about the hologram <laughs> so you <laughs> okay episode notes or next book is in the episode notes available online yes yes it is for free so that came from my discussion in chapter two where i was talking about my experience of being assimilated by whiteness and my kind of resistance to and my families and i was talking about my cousins, my older cousins, who were constantly being stopped and searched under the sus laws, and they actually had to emigrate to the US to to kind of um, avoid all of that. And we're talking about the 80s, so this sort of stop and search thing obviously has been going on for a while. And I was talking about um, Stuart Hall's reading of um, Karl Marx and the market. I'm going to try and distill it as succinctly as I can, but it's actually really hard. So (laughs) (laughs) I will do my best. So Stuart Hall reads the market as being sort of cut into two, if you will, the visible part of it and the hidden part. So the visible part would be the money making and the success and market aspirations. And then the hidden part will be the exploitation of workers to actually create that profit. So so that's it in a nutshell. And then the argument is, is it hidden because through intention are the capitalists hiding that or are they just as unaware of that and that's just how the market is there's this whole thing called appearances where the market is inverted to all of the market aspirations as being the real thing but the exploitation of workers is almost like a fantasy so the market is inverted now If we kind of move that argument on and we're just looking now at appearances, then where I, I talk about it becoming a hologram is where it becomes about the value of those appearances. So those appearances themselves take on their own value that isn't linked directly to the material value. There's a a lovely example that I quote in the book where I think she's called Marverine Cole, who's writing about the image of black women needing to be strong. And that strength is obviously, has negative impact on the well-being of black women because they sort of are isolated and unsupported because they have that image of being strong. So she then talks about how that image is being dangerous and having a negative impact on black women. So that's the image and the the hologram, if you will. Whereas I would say, but 
why do black women have to be strong, quotes and quotes, because of the structural inequalities that they face? So mm -hmm. that's the, the hidden part of the market, but the appearance is the image of black women being strong. But the reason behind why black women have to be strong, that's hidden. So mm -hmm. there is this, so you get this holographic representation of the image of black women, which then assumes its own market value. And I'm saying that's the hologram, and we need to really look at the structural conditions that necessitate black women to be strong in the first place and the support they need and changing the structure so that they don't need to be superhuman. In the book, you point out how difficult this is because it's invisible, right? One of the key things from what you read is invisibility. How do I make known to people what's happening around them, which they take for normal or sometimes they, they use it themselves? The, the, the yeah. very thing that's depressing them, they use it themselves. Yeah. So how do i make people aware of this kind of it's it's it's, it's so multifaceted and it is, you're living yeah. it right we are yeah i think that if we're going to sort of um use a little bit of academic jargon briefly is we need to problematize everything so problematizing is basically just asking why just asking questions because i think the danger that we live in is that all the things that oppress us have become common sense. So we have been socialized into a system where it's common sense for there to be losers and winners in the market. And it's common sense for people to be a certain way in order to be successful in the market. And we have to just keep questioning those assumptions um, over and over and over again until people can begin to um, not take those assumptions for granted so of course you know again borrowing a bit um, from the canon and uh, gramsci describes that common sense point of view as hegemony so for those of you yes. who aren't aware of that term hegemony is a term that describes the societal process of convincing certain members of society that the place that they're in is the correct place so if you don't have hegemony then you have well, state imposition, state violence, where the state imposes those positions on people. So in so-called, quotes and quotes, stable states, they don't want to use violence to control their population, physical violence, I'm saying. So they will use hegemonic processes that harm people into thinking that they should be where they are in society. And they take that even further by indoctrinating people to such a degree that people police themselves and each other. So we talk about Foucault and discipline power um, within that. It's such important stuff. And I really love the way you link the market throughout the whole book, because mm. it's like, it really rings true to me, particularly when we're trying to do this kind of emancipatory work with education mm -hmm. and democratising education and knowledge, because how can we do that adequately when we live in such a neoliberal and capitalist system? And that's what I feel like you talk about really well throughout the book. And it's something that me and Paulette Williams talk about a lot at Leading Roots, like how can we empower 
young people through education and the routes through to education, whilst also not aligning value with monetary success, yeah. like, for example. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah. How, and you mentioned when you were talking in the introduction about supplementary schools, about pride. How can we make sure that capitalism and neoliberalism doesn't infect that? And I don't know if we can, because so often we will have young black people that associate success with, for example, going to Oxford and Cambridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah higher education they have been told that is how you get there that is yeah. how you get optimal and we need to roll back and be like no that isn't that isn't it but how can we adequately do that when we've got so much capitalist bullshit like yeah, in our yeah. world? so there there are two things that we can do to educate um, our young people first of all just taking the oxbridge um example we need to show them that getting into oxbridge is not enough because when they're there they are neglected and traumatized actually in various degrees but they are and you know mental health and well-being is sort of really low for our black um, young people there and then equally importantly the reason the whole reason anyone goes to Oxbridge isn't really for the degree because you have outstanding degrees at other universities in different subjects, obviously, uh, subject specialisms. You go to Oxbridge to enjoy and exploit the network that will help you enter the employment market. So when you go to Oxbridge and you join the various clubs and societies, those people in your peer group are usually going to be the people who are going to lead different sectors of industry or, or civil society. So if you have that early connection with them and you're all together, then that is going to afford you considerable cultural capital later on, which will then translate to economic capital. But so if you're white, that's great, fantastic. But if you're black, not so much. And to be fair, absolutely fair, if you're white and working class, also not so much. Yeah. But they, they have more opportunities to assimilate than we do. But if you're black, no. So you, you get a decent degree. And then if we get a bit technical about how universities work and and the the lag of achievement or attainment between white students and black students in terms of their final degree attainment at Oxbridge, very few um, black students get firsts in at Russell groups in general, Russell group universities yeah. in general, but Oxbridge, and then many, many, many black students get thirds, and very few, a few do get two ones, but not that many. It's just because of how their manuscripts and how their exams are marked, the kind of institutional racism that um, exists across all of the higher education sector not just at Oxbridge. They come out with a 2-2 or maybe a third, and then they start um, applying for jobs. Then they realize that that 2-2 or a third from Oxford won't get them the job, but a white person who went to Bristol with a 2-1 will get the job. So they kind of realize that the the educational premium that they thought they would get from going to Oxbridge isn't there. And then they realize that they're not part or plugged into those social networks in order to get them further in life later on. So we need to educate them on the realities of that education system. And then the second thing we need to do is support. So for me, the book, Black Scholarly Activism, 
is essentially a manifesto for decolonization. And I won't even say decoloniality because decoloniality is really about interrogating power structures that have been left behind by colonial systems, interrogating power structures within our institutions. And that's an incredibly important process that we all have to do. But for me, decolonization is about returning to values and knowledges that are pre-colonial. That's really, really hard to do. But we have in our communities, in our local communities, we have echoes of pre-colonial knowledge um, or knowledges that we need to nurture and excavate. Of course, in our local communities, we have been colonized both kind of historically and we still are colonized in terms of a domestic um, colonization, if you will. But within Within all of that, there's still traditional knowledges and traditional heritage and cultures right. that we need to really educate our children in. And that's where supplementary schools, obviously it happens in families, but in terms of giving families support to do that to their um, young people, supplementary schools are really useful. So when a young person goes to supplementary school, when they eventually do enter the market, whether it's going to university or entering the jobs market, they don't leave themselves at the door of the market. They bring some of that social knowledge with them that was drilled into them from when they were from yeah. elementary schools. Because of course, the whole purpose of the market is to turn us all into market actors. So this is actually quite a crucial point. We are social actors because we live in society and we live in communities and we we have knowledge that come from those networks the market its raison d'etre is to make money to make profit and it, in order to make profit the market can only exist when there are winners and losers so the market is already configured for loss you can't have profit unless there's loss in order to um, control the market space to make profit, you actually have to have market knowledge. So market knowledge is knowledge about the market that can help it fix prices and regulate costs and regulate demand. And social knowledge is far more, it's too complex for the market to control. So yeah. You have to, the market demands of you to strip away all of your social knowledge in order for you to become a market actor who is trying to gain market knowledge to navigate the market. Now, uh, so that's the kind of ethical description of the market, but a real life example is actually slavery. So if we look at transatlantic slave trade, which was only one of many um, slave routes, obviously, that body of work, that unit of labor, the slave, that got um, transported across the seas and cut sugarcane or picked cotton, had to have their kinship networks and their culture actually excised from them. In order to become market actors, yeah. unpaid market at slaves, yeah. social knowledge and kin and community cannot be at the forefront labor has to be yeah. at the forefront because if you there's an argument to be made and david graber makes this really really well when he, he makes the the comparison between slavery and the market 
for that slave to be there in the field picking cotton or cutting sugarcane, they had to be produced from somewhere. They had to have some sort of input in order for them to be there in that field. Their, their life experience actually had to contribute to them being that unit of work. But you're not going to pay them for their experience or, if you will, qualifications. That's the thing. Where they were born and where they were nurtured, that then is excised and cut away from them and they are treated as though they are a new entity with no previous experience or qualifications or networks and they are just market ready to be molded by the market do you, do you see that he calls that social death i'm giving you a mic drop for that but <laughs> it, it's an emotional mic drop fill my eyes well enough a little bit but it makes sense though i needed a blank slate to imprint to, to get you to follow rules to follow yeah. the system right yeah. yes. but because when I was reading your work, I started thinking of, it evoked for me, ancient Greeks, the kind of wandering philosopher. The idea just to know stuff is a good, is a value in itself. To yeah, yeah, know yeah, the yeah. world, right? In their value yeah, to yeah. That would become difficult. However, it's separated, right? Yeah. It categorizes everything and it, it kind of lists things. Because when I was looking at these kind of spaces that I occupy, so these kind of subaltern spaces, this idea of there's different epistemologies there. Yeah. Really instructing notions of work deconstructing yes. notions of education so it wasn't till i when i came out of the system and, and when you kind of described the process of going from university to getting a job this loops going to the graduate recruitment fairs and all this kind of mm. stuff and realized that this is just a myth like all my mm. white friends get a job, but i'm not getting nowhere so mm. i thought you kind of revoked back and i started going back to the places where i'm from and you start understanding the idea of knowing so there's always in the gym there's someone who's a philosopher or in, yeah. or in, a, in a black bar with someone who talks about past histories or different stories that so these yes. things are yes. going on challenging these things but what i always found was difficult was the making the connection saying that we've got all this information here how do i make the connection to that world because i ended up in that world one of those black guys that ended up working in the city and i think how do i make that connection to like my friends who yeah. i know are smart and they have of stuff of value and they're talking stuff and that means stuff and i can readily translate what they're talking about into i don't know tangible things that that's because i used to work for a financial firm to turn it into tangible results that can produce profit but i was always lost how do i make that link how do i bridge that gap it is really hard because i think what what we're really talking about is what do we envisage to be an alternative to the present system that we're living in that's yeah. always been so when when, when you asked me to uh, give um, a, a little summary of pan-africanism the essential nugget of pan-africanism is about how do we envisage an alternative and the different stages of pan-africanism are different articulations of that which have their own kind of problems. So Kehinde Andrews in Back to Black really goes to town on the different stages of, of Pan-Africanism um, in a fantastic way. So I'm, I'm, I will entreat you to read that book because it is quite amazing. I do argue with him in that book. I do take him to task over a couple of things, but it's a great book. So this is for me where I'm a, a critical thinker, cultural theorist, but I come from the perspective of praxis. So you'll, you'll be aware of theory and praxis. So theory is theory, but praxis is the practical application of theory. That's what praxis means. So my theorizing always has to have a practical application so that I can use that to help the communities that um, 
I live with. It's not that I just work with them, I live with them. Onet, that's why we love you. Lots of people aren't able to do that. Lots of people don't want mm -hmm. to do that. But lots of people do it. And you are one of those people. It's so important. We, we need, I think I used to be quite snobby about those people who didn't do it, who don't do that. But over the years, I've kind of grown to realize that we are an army with different specialisms and different exactly. roles. And it's about coordinating everybody strategically. So other people will have those skills that I don't have. I have those skills that other people don't have. But if we intelligently and strategically coordinate our efforts, then we can move forward. So. From the praxis point of view, if we try to educate our young people around those other cosmologies or epistemologies, then when they enter the market, they're going to have a stand a better chance of being able to change the market or build a new system for themselves. So the work that I do and we do is really about planting seeds. It's really about saying to people, we live in this matrix, if you will, and we can't escape it. But the first step towards escaping it is imagining, imagination. Because what colonialism has done and the evil of colonialism is when it killed people through genocide and killed knowledges through epistemicide, it killed the imagination of the, the colonized. So the colonized just became empty shells just to kind of follow the diktats of the colonizers and to become like the colonizers. And that's a really clever thing to do because if you can rip out the soul of a person so that all of who they are historically and their identity is taken away from them and then you replace all of that with, okay, in order for you to become human in my eyes, you've got to become more like me, then you already can control them because all that resistance is gone. But that's exactly why we had the hundreds of slave revolts across many continents back in the day because the slaves refused to give up their identities. Cedric um, J. Robinson talks about the Negro and, and that's for me, a really fantastic concept because if we really understand what the Negro is, we can understand evil of the colonial process and obviously slavery. The Negro technically is an emptied out shell of what used to be an African person full of rich culture and ethnicity in the wider sense, kinship, language, all of that's been scooped out. They are now just a unit of work to function as a profit-making machine or a small cog in the wheel of a profit-making machine. And that's the Negro. So the Negro is a Western marketized invention. And then the Negro has, through the market, kind of been transformed into which I, I write about in my book from the point of view of some of my young people in a grind project that um, I ran and blackness, which now has become a commercial entity where the image of black people is now, has now replaced the body. So back in the day, the body, the, the slave body created the profit. 
But the slave body was actually quite hard to control, hence all of the, the revolts. That Because uh, I don't want to give the impression, because it would be totally wrong, that slaves did not have agency. Our ancestors had lots of agency, and it was through their revolts that brought about um, the ending of slavery, because obviously profit couldn't be made, because we kept on, our ancestors kept on revolting. It's so interesting how few people know that history like mm -hmm. even thinking about more famously like the haitian revolution like, yeah 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 only in the last sort of five years that i definitely understood that we weren't passive during these processes no no it's certainly awful, yeah. it, feels, it feels awful to say that but it's just i was i wasn't taught that at school like it's not something with its which was in the public domain but no, it was no. but if you don't have access to it and you don't know where to find it like you just get the british version of what happened like mm -hmm. slavery happened and british people came and saved all the enslaved yeah, and no, yeah no such thing no our ancestors died to set us free literally gave their lives so you'll be aware of the Valladolid debate between Las Casas and Sepulveda in, I don't know, 1518 or something like that. It was the first human rights debate that was recorded. So the argument was, do we enslave the Indians, the native people, or do we just not <laughs> enslave them? So the argument was, can they be made to become Christian? Can they become Catholic? Because obviously Spain at the time was, was a Catholic country. If they have the ability to become Catholic, then they have a soul that's worth saving, which means they can't be enslaved. So, and then the other side was, well, because they're, they're cannibals and they're barbarians, which was the view at the time, they can't be saved and they can't become Christian or Christianized. So it was about pegging the being versus non-being depending on their potential to become christianized so but that argument of soul was never applied to the african person that was being enslaved and i think the reason why it was never applied to the african man and woman is because slavery african chattel slavery Okay, so just I'm going to back up just a little bit because people will say, but slavery has been with us since the dawn of mankind. People will obviously say that because it's true. But I would, I would retort that transportation has been with us since the dawn of mankind. So when people first emigrated out of Africa, it was on foot. At some point, someone invented the wheel. At some point, somebody domesticated the horse. So all of these modes of transport defined different epochs. All of these different modes of transport had their own ethical considerations, but they all had one thing in common to get people from A to B. But you wouldn't say walking is just the same as flying to the moon. That would be like obviously ridiculous. So we have to think of slavery in exactly the same terms. We have over the the different eras and epochs, different types of slavery, which operated under different ethical rules and situations and circumstances. So for instance, in some societies, slaves were still considered human and had codified rights within their civil society. Some of those slaves were able to assume positions of power within their communities. And I'm thinking in sort of 
there are some exam examples of s slaves becoming um, senators in Rome, for instance, and kind of. So you know, depending on the system of slavery you're looking at, there are different rules and ethics, just like transport. So, but what made African chattel slavery really stand out and really unique was its industrial scale. Because of the expansion of Europe and the colonial expansion of Europe, it needed more workers. It just needed more workers at an industrial scale. But it wasn't just going to get them from the low level servants and type of sort of indentured workers that already existed within European slave systems. It needed something else. It needed to recruit millions of workers in order to kickstart the um, European expansion and its economy. So in order to do that, it needed to associate for the first time labor with the black body. So the first time ever, the African and blackness ascribed to the African linked to their body became a unit of work a, a, and a piece of property or chattel. And it's that chattel that became the cog, one of the cogs for capitalism, the foundational levers of capitalism. So that particular um, system of slavery was the first time that race was equated to labor in that really simplified way. Because in all other instances of slavery in other societies, it wasn't as flattened out as that. There were kind of different sort of elements to it. You know, maybe it was time sensitive, so you could only be a slave for a certain amount of time. You could only do this, but not that. And maybe after a certain amount of time, you could be free, depending on what cultures were coming from. But this flattening out effect of African chattel slavery where, you were a slave and your offspring also were slaves for the rest of your lives, actually is unique um, in the sort of history of the slave system. I think it's really good that we've gone from talking about supplementary schools to the markets and our slavery, because I think that link is so integral. But yeah. one of the things I want to say to you on it is, like when we started this podcast three years ago, Tiso, you were talking about the Enlightenment and talking mm. about the revolution mm -hmm. and he you were one of the first people that ever said to me we need to understand slavery as in as just as important as these other different social moments like the enlightenment i feel like one of the reasons why we had but had have had little bits of or captured little bits of optimism over the last sort of few months particularly thinking about black lives matter is some people that have benefited from the system mm -hmm. um, those that benefit majority from white supremacist um, mm -hmm, society mm -hmm. logics have started to make that connection to the importance of slavery. I mean, it's not enough. There's not enough connection. But that's one of the things that you said it to me, yeah, three years ago, T, but it's one of the things that I feel like we've sort of seen a little bit more develop within the mainstream. Like people talking about the banks. It's like, yeah, yeah, I, didn't, yeah. I didn't feel like you lot knew that the banks came yeah. from yeah. slavery. Like, yeah. really difficult to talk about particularly as black people, I find, I, I personally, I find it quite difficult to talk about, even though I know it's imp it's important. It's so intrinsic. Tiso and I have been reading Christina Sharp as well, and it's mm -hmm. just been really something which we've been talking quite a lot about. Modernity um, in the West. So there are, there are different theories around 
modernity and how that came about. But modernity in the West kind of started with the Enlightenment, but that Enlightenment would not have happened without the slave trade and the different slave trades. It's because So the interesting thing about the Enlightenment is this, and this is where we get back to the hologram or the inverted market. So the Enlightenment is this period in European history where reason actually kind of came onto the scene and logic and, and all of that. However, to get to this period of enlightenment, the, in Europe, there was the Dark Ages, which we, we know about, the medieval times. And they were the Dark Ages because Europe, which didn't exist at that point, although it did exist by the Enlightenment, but through the Dark Ages, was reeling after the fall of Rome, which obviously had colonized the mm -hmm. European continent. So when Rome was dissolved and its power was transferred to the papacy, and it formed the Holy Roman Empire and all the rest of it. And of course, we know that Europe as, a, as an entity didn't really sort of congeal until after the Westphalian Treaty in, I don't know, 1614 1648. or whatever. 1648, thank you, thank you. Wait, this is like your favourite topic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fantastic. There's no way for me to talk about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, so the, the reason why that's important is because the, the entity of Europe didn't really begin until that point when nation states began to draw borders that be, that begin to look or resemble modern day borders. Um, and then, so all of that time and through the dark ages, the Ottoman empire and Arabic learning and North African and African learning actually informed the entire world. And of course that sort of non-Western and I'm kind of being a sort of anachronistic because it wasn't non-Western at the time, but you get my drift, non-European, yeah. <laughs> Learning actually was absorbed through obviously ancient Greece and then later on Roman learning. So in order for the enlightenment to happen, all of this non-Western or non-European learning actually had to happen first in order to <laughs> build European enlightenment. So what I'm trying to say is the word enlightenment is almost uh, a misnomer because they weren't enlightened all of a sudden. They were enlightened by being taught, by having knowledge transferred to them from the rest of the world that then came, that congealed into. So a lot of these enlightenment um, theories can be seen in famous and well-known Arabic scholars and African scholars and Chinese scholars. So, so the reason why I call it the hologram is that you've got the enlightenment. This is the, the, where Europe was born and, and where Europe's kind of superiority sort of came about. But what they're not showing is the process of how that process of how that period of enlightenment came about, because without the rest of the world, there would have been no enlightenment. And then on, on top of that, in order to then um, have economic power, so they had intellectual power from knowledge stolen, well, not really stolen, but unacknowledged knowledge, but they needed military and economic dominance. So they had to then get the slaves. 
different slaves, different ethnicities, different colonies from around the world in order to, to do that. So without slavery and without the cosmological worlds that the enslaved people came from, there would be no European modernity. It's as foundational as that. We built the modern West in terms of Europe, our ancestors. I was going to say what's quite interesting, and I, I kind of look back to kind of what you said earlier about the Negro and the idea now is it's an idea that sells itself, like it, the idea of blackness, the idea, yeah, yeah. the enlightenment in itself has become like an idea. It's it's detached from everything else and it's just yeah. appeared. Yeah. The idea and that and that inversion that happens in capitalism is you can see that in progress in our day-to-day -day life. So Nike don't make trainers, they make ideas. It's an idea factory. It's, once you have an idea, it nothing else matters. You can sell the idea. Yes, yes, exactly that. So the reason why I called it a hologram or a digital representation of what I call the analog version of the market, so that will make no sense to people unless they, they read chapter two. But the reason why I called it that is because and I invoked um, Baudrillard. So Baudrillard, Jean Baudrillard is really quite an interesting philosopher because he really, in my my humble opinion, uh, nails the idea of the hologram and the de deception and the unrealness of the market because he's, his work is really about the foundations of consumerism. So mm -hmm. the market, it, so when we talk about Karl Marx, um, Marxism, we're talking about um, almost like a physical market with kind of producers and workers and blah, blah, blah. Um, and so I won't go into the classical classical Marxism, so we just probably don't have the time. But when you get to Baudrillard, he then says that the market is about consumerism. The market is about um, what is the value, the exchange value of an object? What is the functional value? Okay, so let me make that concrete. My phone. What is the exchange value of my phone? So if I were to exchange my phone with you, would it equal a pen or a chair or a table? What is the functional value of my phone? How well does it work? Um, what is the uh, symbolic value of my phone? What does my phone mean to me? And what does my phone say about me? And then sign value is that, what does my phone say about me? You know, is it a status symbol for, or whatever? Those facets of the market build um, an entirely new um, consumer market is basically um, what he's saying. And what we're talking about is narratives, because in order to say what my phone, how that phone makes me in terms of how that phone portrays my value to the market, that means a story has to be told about that phone and how that story impacts on me. So iPhone 12 is... It makes you really appear cutting edge and innovative and just kind of the future. Then obviously owning that is going to inflect on your market value as a consumer. But a story has to be told around the brand, obviously. So what we're talking about are stories before colonialism. And we were looking at um, pre-colonial epistemologies. Those were also stories 
creation stories from around the world. Different worlds have the same story of creation, but are slightly different depending on where they're from. And those stories were passed down orally in kind of pre-colonial times. And those stories were the basis of how those societies were ordered and who, you know, the different societal hierarchies were all predicated from those cosmologies, those stories. And what we've done in the West, we, we look at pre-colonial uh, societies as being unsophisticated because it's all oral and it's story-based. But what we've done, we've actually recreated our own cosmology of the market, which is all about stories. So we've literally recreated the cosmos, but on economic and market terms. So what we need to do with our young people is tell different stories. I'd agree with you. There's, there's many stories, but one story assumes a hegemonic yes, role. Yes, yeah. Given one story assumes dominance, right? And it's usually pushed by a smaller group of people. Yeah, because there's many stories, but these stories get pushed aside by a minority of people. Yeah. How do you avoid that historically? Like, whenever an elite comes to power, so the story, his, the story of history, is the story of people who are have power. Yeah, yeah, yeah everyday yeah. people don't get mentioned. So, how do we avoid? Because there's always a multiplicity of stories that are always around. So the early Christian church. Yes. So there's multiple stories. There's yes. different books of different books that should have been that that haven't been included in in the Bible, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's always a minority of people that make one story hegemonic. Yes. And 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 push other stories, whether they considered orthodoxy or unorthodox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they yeah. always sit, they sit on the outside. But guess what? The the era that we are living in, we we now live in a vastly more democratized mass media system, otherwise known as social media, than mm -hmm. we've ever, ever, ever had in the entire mm -hmm. history of humankind. So when you say one story is assumed, what you're actually saying is that internally, that's a common sense position that's assumed. I don't mm. personally assume that. <laughs> so when I speak to people, I don't care what their assumption is. It's not mine. And that's where it needs to begin. You, mm. We yeah. need to say in ourselves, in our minds. Be critical. Well, yes. Your story is not more important than mine. You might think it is, but it actually isn't. And I'm not going to treat you as though it is. Now, yeah. interesting to say, so I, I, yeah. I recognise that now, but, and what you see, and I, what I was trying to kind of lead to is that these stories right now are in the ether. So right now, conspiracy is the flavour of the day, right? These different yeah. stories yeah. to explain the world, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so in this kind of quagmire we're in now, so people took saying stuff that is actually crazy. It was yeah, yeah. crazy yeah. something they're saying. Yeah. So. Yeah. You have this time where everyone now is talking different stories, you're hearing different voices because the democratization of voices yeah, through social yeah, media, right? Yeah. So in this cacophony of noise, right? Yeah. How do how, we yeah? How how do you find your way forward in this noise? Because right now, this has been some of the problems. So the pushback is the pushback from the mainstream is free speech is under threat. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But there's a there's a, a clamor for everyone to say these different stories. Well, I think there always has been, it's just that it's made more visible and uh, malleable um, with today's technology. The only way 
I think we can move forward is by telling the stories we want to tell, forming alliances locally. So we have to start small. We can't kind of start big. We can think big, but start small. So we've got to tell those stories to our local communities. And, and the best way that I see is through community education and the ready-made educate community education vehicle supplementary education. And then as that knowledge um, increases and is disseminated, then we use social media to link that up. So yes, we are going to have to navigate the fake news and the conspiracy theories because it is like an assault course now. But we need to organize so that we form our alliances with our stories. Mm. We can't really mm. be bothered about, oh, there's really so many other voices. I think, you know, at my time of life, it's sort of like, I can't be bothered about the other voices now. It's, the important thing is my voice. And if you agree with me, that's great. We can work together. But if you don't agree with me, that's also fine. You can work with other people. So we all have to sort of keep, have that mentality of let's not bother about the other voices. Let's just make sure that what we're doing and our voices, our stories are the, the most beneficial, the highest quality, the most aspirational, but without being dangerous stories that can help and uplift our people. So it's about mm -hmm. plowing our own path and being confident in our own path and working with the people, only working with the people who want to work with us and not losing too much sleep over the people who don't want to work with us. Mm -hmm. but, but it takes a while to kind of get to that stage. And I, th I suppose if I'm being honest, you get to that stage because you're so tired that you don't have the energy <laughs> to work with people who don't want to work with you. So it's kind of more of a practical thing. So, I th and I think social media, so, you know, holding podcasts and doing webinars and webcasts and all the stuff that we are now doing is perfect because we weren't yeah. really able, even though the technology existed before the lockdown, obviously, we weren't able to mobilize in quite that way before lockdown. Yeah. But because of the lockdown, the, the, the platforms that were already there have now enabled us to come together um, and bring together like-minded people to tell those stories. Now, the reason why I'm so into stories is because the evil of uh, colonization is that the psyche the thing that makes us human as black people, as people from the African diaspora and other colonized peoples, actually, our humanness, our history, our culture, that's sort of taken away. And that means that our internal psyches were reordered. In order to be colonized, your internal space, what we normally think of as our private realms, our private realms actually have to be violated in order to be colonized. So for me, we collectively as a people and all of those who have been colonized, as I said, from different ethnicities, what we need to start doing is a bit of sociogeny, which is what Franz Fanon would, would be doing or would have done with his um, patients, is reorientating our inner landscapes, our psyches. And the the most direct way of reorientating our psyches is through the stories we tell 
of ourselves, both individually and collectively. So for me, uh, decolonization, in a nutshell, is really about getting back to those pre-colonial stories that we told to ourselves that were to unite us and uplift us as peoples from different, you know, ethnic areas. That knowledge was wiped out by uh, European or Eurocentric colonization. So it's all about getting back to those other stories and filling the hole that's in us or replacing the rubbish that's in us with these new stories. Ornette, thank you so much for joining us. And what a perfect way to start this season, T. Hope, hope, just hope. Hope, yes, <laughs> yes. Hope, yes. Hope. hope that is what we have. And we have to we have to hold tight to it because we, yeah. we need it. And thank you so much for that, Ornette. Like, it's given me so much food for thought. And guys, the book is in the episode notes. You need to read it. It's so brilliant. It's written so well as well. Like, it's written like someone's talking to you. Like, I really love I that understand it. it. I, like, I can understand it. So clearly. And um, yeah, Ornette, mm -hmm. thank you so much for joining us. My Listeners, pleasure. thank you so much for joining us as well. Patrons, we have got a extra episode for you so head over to patreon now thank you bye you have been listening to surviving society with chantel and tiso if you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our patreon if not you can always support us by subscribing rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform